Hello my guys, my gals, and my non-binary pals. Welcome along to today's first episode of the Peter Greenwood Show at The Fringe 2021. I've been speaking to a bunch of Fringe performers, and I'm going to bring you my interviews with them. That's how this works. So we've got some great forms coming up today. There's going to be a whole bunch of episodes, so keep your eyes peeled for that. But we are starting with Afia Campbell talking about her show's Woke, and the black is the colour of my voice. Take a listen. Can I start by asking you your name and what you do, please? I'm sorry? Can I start by asking you your name and what you do, please? Oh, my name's Afia Campbell, and I am an actress, a theatre maker, and a singer. You've got two shows up at the Fringe. One is called Woke, and the other is Black is the Colour of My Voice. How does it feel having two shows at the Edinburgh Fringe? Um real fantastic. Uh, I have some variety when I'm performing. <laughs> so when I get sick of one show, I'm like, oh, wait, I could do the other one tomorrow. And then I'm excited to do the, the same one the next day. <laughs> so it's nice to uh, have uh, some two shows to like, kind of go back and forth between. <laughs> yeah, have some variety because variety is the spice of life. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So I want to start by asking about Black is the Colour of My Voice, which was written and performed by you, and it's about the life of Nina Simone. Where did this story come from, and how much into Nina's life do do you go? Um. Well, it started... I've been performing the show now for about seven years. Uh, I wrote it kind of in, out of curiosity to who she was as the woman behind the music, I suppose. And so I read her autobiography like several times and I was really interested in her relationship with her father. So the story kind of explores her life through um, this relationship with her father uh, and follows her life as a child prodigy up until the civil rights movement. So you get to hear a lot of her music, but also learn a lot about her journey as well. So... I want to ask about the music side of it, but I want to ask about what you found out about Nina. Did she have a good relationship with her father? Well, they were really close. Uh, growing up, he was the one who kind of encouraged her to just explore kind of all kinds of music, whereas her mother wanted her to strictly, you know, play gospel music. Uh, and she saw worldly music as devil's music. Uh, so, yeah, they were really, really close. And their relationship actually was damaged later on in the life in her life because they ended up having an argument and they never resolved um, this argument and he died and she felt really guilty about that. So she decided to do this cleansing ritual to um, have some resolution. And she said at the end of that cleansing ritual of three days, she saw her father. So my play kind of takes place in these three days of her cleansing and that's how we end up going through her life and also exploring yeah, the relationship she had with her father, the ups and downs and everything. What were you surprised to find out about Nina? Because I know next to nothing, I know the songs, and I know her voice is otherworldly, but what did you find out about her? Because I, I don't know anything about Nina. Uh, I think I was really surprised about the relationship um, with her husband, um, that type of relationship that she was in, which wasn't... a really positive relationship and I I guess it's kind of like you see such a strong woman and you kind of think that that's reflected in all parts of of their life and I found that to be the one of the most surprising uh parts and I guess kind of how she was quite traditional as well in her thoughts about marriage and relationships uh that kind of surprised me as well uh when I was researching about the piece initially uh so, yeah, those things. <laughs> That's so interesting that you say that, because I would have imagined, and again, I don't know much about Nina, but growing up in, in the jazz world that she grew up in and the creative world that she grew up in, I'd imagine she'd be quite free-thinking, liberal, for want of a better term. I think she was, um, as time progressed, and she you know, joined different social groups, she did develop and grow, I think, more. But I think those values in terms of marriage and tradition, that foundation uh, that she saw within her own family, that that stuck with her throughout her life. And she wanted that. Um, she wanted that kind of structure within her life. And yeah, that. I guess we, if we think about it in terms of 
like now and today that seems I think pretty crazy but she was born in like in the 50s and <laughs> that that structure was there and so I think it definitely will affect your ideas about um about family yeah definitely I can see how that would really make an imprint on you and especially at at a at an at a young age as Nina was mm. when she witnessed her witnessed her parents being together and then her mm. father's passing. I want to ask about the music because as I mentioned earlier Nina has this voice which is instantly recognizable. What was that like approaching those songs and putting your own spin onto them? Um well I guess that's one of the reasons why I say it's inspired by Nina Simone's life um because I was really interested in people wanting to get to know the woman behind the music. And I found sometimes when you watch a show based on the person's life, the audience spent the whole time thinking, well, that doesn't sound like her. That doesn't sound like her. <laughs> and, um, and because she has that distinctive voice, I wanted to be able to kind of express how I felt about her in certain situations. Um, and also, I kind of use my own voice to kind of tell the story. So I try to mimic how she emotes um, the music and emotes like an emotion. Uh, but I don't try to mimic her sound <laughs> because, like you said, it is a very distinct sound. And I think I can still connect. I still connect with the music in a way and can tell the story vocally uh, that I hope does justice to music. <laughs> I want to ask this, and I, I don't mean this to be rude in any way, but has your opinion of Nina changed since you started looking so deeply into her life? I, I still have a great admiration for her. Um, I think for who she was and in her time, and to take the stand, especially that she did in terms of civil rights and writing the protest songs and standing up for what she believed in, even when it meant to the detriment of her career, that's just brave and bold and and I just have so much admiration for her as a woman, as an artist. So yeah, I guess it has changed in that yeah, I just respect her even more. <laughs> I wanna talk about the next show you're doing now. It is called Woke. What's that show mm. about? Where's where'd that one come from? Uh so yeah, Woke is about two women forty two years apart who get involved in the civil rights movement. And um, that show, the inception of that, like, kind of started when I was back in college. A friend of mine had written a piece about Asada Shakur that I always really loved. And so when I was kind of looking for new ideas, I was looking at her piece and was, like, kind of used that as a foundation uh, for Woke. And I was also really inspired by the documentary 13th that Ava DuVernay um, wrote, uh, produced and it was around the same time of like the uh, Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson and I felt really moved by the movement and I myself um, because I was living in Shanghai and I had been for quite some time and I was watching everything come out through the media and had a lot of questions about the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of questions about what how I was seeing them being portrayed and um, so I guess I wanted to educate people a bit more about the movement. And also I saw the similarities between the present movement of the Black Lives Matter movement and the um, Black Panther movement and to draw those um, similarities between the two to kind of ask that question about, you know, how far have we come with the civil rights movement? What were some of the, how do I say this? What were some of the more shocking things that you found out when you were watching the movements on the tele on the television and when it was all unfolding how did that make you feel and how did that go into putting this show together well yeah when i was watching um in, in shanghai i would just see these images out of ferguson like the really famous images of you know the man with his fist in the air amidst like a, a, a fire and you would hear about the lootings and and everything um that was happening there in ferguson but then when I watched this documentary and I started hearing about the ticketing system and seeing that this was a systemic um, systemic thing that was happening all within the United States to keep 
black and brown people in a state of poverty and imprisonment, then I just was seeing how the problem was much deeper than what was being shown in the media. And so I, I guess in a way I wanted to kind of talk about the movement and educate myself and, and that turn, I mean, hopefully help other people understand, you know, what was happening behind all of the stories that were, that they saw in the media. I want to ask this, and I don't mean this to be rude in any way, but what similarities have you found between writing your story about Nina Simone and what was going on with the civil rights movement then and what was happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is still ongoing? Well, it wasn't more so like with Nina Simone's story. It was more like the Black Panthers, like um, because obviously the Black Panthers were being criminalized, you know, yeah. that their their um, their facilities were bugged. They had uh, moles sent into them, uh, into their to, to their camps to, to try and find out more about them and trying to sow disruption within to the movement. And it's maybe not so much about that um, in the Black Lives Matter movement that I can see, but in terms of criminalization, it is. It was similar language that I was hearing uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, calling them terrorists, and and even now, like the way the word woke has taken on like a different context, um, trying to use like our own words of empowerment like against us. It's the same kind of similarities that I saw with the Black Panther movement, uh, which is why. Yeah, I wanted to kind of show those similarities between the two movements, you know, like these, what, 40, 60 <laughs> years apart. Yeah. I want to ask, what does the title mean? What does woke mean in this context of your story? Does it, because you mentioned that it's being used against, against, against us, those who use the word, as a weapon. It's become a weaponized word. So yeah, there's I mean, not really a question there. I'm just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, well, the show was written in 2017, so this was before the weaponization of the word. Uh, but even with that, I still thought of it like woke. It's it, it means an awakening, right? People becoming aware of the things or the inequalities that are happening around them. They're awake, and. That kind of is what happens to the lead character in Woke, uh, Ambrosia's character. She does have this awakening to um, to these injustices. And obviously, she's kind of learning it through Asada's story. And Asada's having her own awakening as well, um, because she joined the Black Panther movement for the good that it was doing. But within that, found her own self, um, found herself uh, criminalized through that movement. Uh, so yeah, so I always thought of it as an awakening for both of the characters, um, and at the time as well, it was it came in the French, so it was also a, a way to really grab my audience <laughs> and let them know exactly what they were coming to see. I'd like to ask, what has the reaction been like from the audience to both the first play and Woke? Um, I it's it's very different reactions. <laughs> Well, I think people know what they're coming to see when they come to see Black is the Color of My Voice, or they have an idea, and it probably is closer to what they, you know, what the idea that they had when they came in. But I think when people come to see Woke, they're not really sure what they're coming to see, and people seem really moved by the story. Uh, quite often when I'm on tour, uh, I always laugh because people don't clap at the end. There's always just a silence. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to bow and say, okay, it's over. <laughs> but I appreciate that because it means, you know, people are really listening and really taking it in and it's in a, in a different way um, from Black. Uh, so, so yeah, just different responses. But I think people are both moved in both pieces, but in different ways. As a storyteller, though, that must be quite gratifying to to see that an audience is so enraptured that they don't know how to respond to a story? <laughs> um, I, I think the first time it happened, I was like, what's going on? Yeah. But as time, has, <laughs> yeah, as time has progressed, I've taken it more as a compliment. It's like people are really just like, 
wow, yeah. like really taking it in. And and I appreciate that because it just means they were really listening. They were really caught up in the story and connected to the to the character uh, and, and invested in the character. So I I think it's a job well done then. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I can imagine at the beginning you're like, applaud? Did I, did I do bad? What, what did I do wrong here? But now it's like, yes, I got him again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where can people find out more about you and your shows online? Uh, I have a website, uh, com, and uh, I have like, yeah, more information about where my work is on that website. Uh, I'm also on all social media outlets, <laughs> so come and follow me and check out you know, me on my social media. You might see some stories flooded of me and my son, uh, so you can look through those as you're looking at my work as well. <laughs> Black is the Colour of My Voice is written and performed by Afia Campbell and is being performed at Pleasance at the EICC on the 6th, the 8th, the 10th, the 12th and the 14th of August at 6pm. Woke is being performed on the 7th, the 9th, the 13th and the 15th also at the Pleasance EICC from 6pm. You can get your tickets online, go to tickets.edfest.com com and search for either woke or black is the color of my voice could we start by telling me your name and what you do please sure my name is brendan murphy and i am uh, the writer and performer of friend the one with gunther let's talk about this show where did it come from what's its origin story well, I was off on tour doing a show called Potted Potter, which is uh, all seven of our Harry Potter books in about 70 minutes. So just over an hour. And um, I, I sort of was watching a lot of Friends at the time while on tour. And I thought, you know what, this would be a brilliant thing to sort of condense and turn into a, a similar sort of parody show. You know what? Potter isn't long enough. Let me get myself a real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. All, all 10 seasons, uh, 5,192 minutes in total. Uh, I all, bet even the all, president all of NBC doesn't know how many minutes of Friends there were. Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it's debatable whether you, whether you count the... Um, the intro every time or not (laughs) therein lies a question i think you have to count the intro because that's like like the intro and is like the price of admission that's what you you pay to get into the episode of friends so i think you have to count the intro every single time that's just me absolutely and and it changed each um each season as well so you got to see where the claps gonna be yes you know what else is gonna be added to the uh to the opening uh, role. Yeah, exactly. You need to see where the credits were going to go, what they were going to be doing <laughs> that season. So, I cutting down 10 seasons into just over an hour? Yeah, yeah, just over an hour. How does that work? What what does Gunther notice throughout well, the 10 see, years this, of Friends? This is uh, the, the key question. I mean, we, it's very much telling Gunther's view of the uh of the series so i mean if you go back he's there from the start he's there yeah. at the start he's there in the end he actually appears in 185 episodes which is more than any other character outside of the main six um but in the first season he actually doesn't say anything he doesn't speak until about halfway through season two was that right um yeah yeah and uh he he has an interesting arc though you know, I mean, obviously, we all know the sort of story of unrequited love between him and Rachel. Yeah. Um, but he's invited to a lot of important events. He's at weddings. He's at birthday parties. He's obviously at Central Park pretty much every time that they stop in there. So he has a very definite version of uh, what happened over those 10 years. And what can you tell us about how long it took to to whittle down like what moments do you include what moments do you not include what's that process like yeah i mean well obviously there are moments that you can't miss out you know i mean pivot with the <laughs> with with the sofa yeah people are going to be up in arms if they come and see a friend show and that's not involved 
similar with uh, you know certain catchphrases from the gang, Thanksgiving turkeys getting stuck on people's heads, um, dressing up in all the clothes, whatever you, you know, there's key moments and key phrases that have to be involved. But um, I think coming at it from a Gunther eye view, it was very much what are the most important things to hit for him. The relationship between Ross and Rachel, when it was going well, that was a cause of concern. When it was going badly, there was a cause of hope. Um, so, yeah, it was sort of figuring out what are the most important moments and how does that affect Gunther? I, there's so many questions I want to ask, but I know you can't tell me the answer to because you want people to come and see the show because, like everybody else, I love Friends. James Corden isn't in this one, is he? He's not in your show, is he? Well, you know what? The thing with James Corden is you can never guarantee that he won't turn up. Um, you know, there's some musical numbers in the show, and I know he loves musicals. Yes. So, um, you know, I'm not going to stop him from turning up. I am... Uh, I, I'm open to it, but he's not officially on the bill. No, I see. I so understand I, fully. Um, if, if you're if you're sort of James Corden phobic, then don't worry; it's going to be a safe place. But um, <laughs> you know, I certainly can't guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just threw that question out there. Like, wouldn't it be funny? And I got an actual oh, legit course. answer. It was brilliant. I appreciate that <laughs> so much. Now, I guess. Edinburgh is kind of a long way from LA where they taped the show, but have you heard anything from Mr. James something something whose name escapes me off the top of my head? James Michael Tyler. That's um, the fella. The, yeah, the original, the Gunther. He is, um, by all accounts, a wonderful man. And he's he's actually currently going through... Um, he, he's raising money and awareness for prostate cancer at the moment. He's going really? through his own um, uh, cancer journey at the moment. I mean, it, it sounds like he found out very late. It's stage four. Um, he didn't let the world know until after the um, the friends reunion because mm-hmm. he, you know, he didn't want to make it all about him or anything like that but he's doing some amazing work um and we we haven't been really directly in touch but we've made friends over twitter there's been a little bit of back and forth and uh he seems really sort of game for the idea of of the show going out but um yeah obviously that's that's a whole other world and um we you know can only wish him the best yeah but absolutely. He, he seems like such a cool guy and the stuff that he's doing now is so great See, I hadn't heard that at all, but maybe it just didn't hit my news radar because it was so full of the Friends reunion. That's absolutely devastating to hear. Yeah, that. yeah. Well, it, it puts a different spin because I know a lot of people that watched the Friends reunion were thinking, oh, he was, you know, he was on a sort of live link. He zoomed mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Um, but it was only for a couple of minutes. And a lot of people thought, oh, well, he was such an important part of the show. It's a real shame that he wasn't given more. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh yeah there were of course reasons behind that and um i think by all accounts everything that i've read and seen of him it's it's been a very sort of humble and um positive sort of affirmative vibe that he's taken Um, i hope he gets very well soon and next year comes to edinburgh and just to see the show oh well yeah absolutely i think if if we if i ever find myself out in la i'd be more than happy to to throw together a, a show for him <laughs> maybe take him for a coffee but where would be the question well yeah where <laughs> <laughs> this has been the voice of brendan murthy he is doing friend the one with gunther at the edinburgh fringe festival where can people find out more about you and about the show well you can visit uh, the one with gunther.com and that's got all of our tour dates um we're going to be on at the Pleasant at the EICC, that's the Edinburgh International Conference Centre, from the 16th, I believe, to the 29th. So that's the second two weeks of the uh, Edinburgh Festival Fringe at 6pm. Uh, but if you just Google Friends, the one with Gunther, uh, it should come up and you'll be able to find out more there. I'm so excited to come along and see you. Thank you so much for your time today, Brendan. Thank you very much, Peter. 
Trend. The one with Gunther is playing at Pleasance at the EICC from the 16th to the 25th of August, not including the 18th or the 25th. Search Friend the one with Gunther at tickets.edfringe.com. Could I stop asking your name and what you do, please? I'm Richard Shelton, and I'm playing Frank Sinatra in Sinatra Raw. There's so much I want to ask about your show, because I'm I'm a fan of Frank, and there's so much I want to know, so much I want to ask, but let's start with the origins. Where did the show come from? Um, it actually came from a lunch I had, or a dinner actually, in New York with, um, I live in Los Angeles at the moment, and I was having, it, this sounds so showbiz, and it, and it truly isn't, but I, was, I happened to be in New York when my UK manager was there, we went out to dinner, and I'd played Frank Sinatra in a drama called Rat Pack Confidential, which was an expose of the five men in, in the Rat Pack, um, Frank Dean, Sammy, Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford. And that had been at Nottingham, Nottingham Playhouse and in the West End. Anyway, um, Mike had said over dinner, you know, I, I want you to go back to being Frank, really dark, make something really dark, go back inside the character. So I said, yeah, I can do that. So it actually came from a dinner with much too much wine. And I got back to L.A. and I thought, right, I've got to write this thing now. So it, uh, it, it spun off into all sorts of, you know, tangents before I actually got the, the kernel of an idea. Um, to set it in Palm Springs. So that's, that's the origin. And how deep into Frank's life did you have to go to get this story together? Um, very deep. In, but I have a... Rat Pack Confidential gave us all... We, we all the, Each of the five men, we had a five-week rehearsal period, and the week of that was to do nothing more than watch videos and to listen to music and to try and understand... The movements, the if you like the ballet, the choreography of the of the person. So you you knew how they walk. You 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 know you understood the facial tics, the the way they blink, or you know the way they hold their heads. And, and that was, like I say, that was true for all five of us. So when we came together on stage, we could at least evoke and present, you know, a, a believable um sort of imagery. But but then on top of that, you have to. It's not layering from the outside. It's more feeling from the inside. So if you if you go deep inside the character you're portraying, you can't go wrong. If you tell the truth, you can't go wrong. Um, so it's a very long way from imitation, which is the other way around. You know, when you're layering from the outside. So in order to do that, you know, I, I felt I just had to read everything I could get my hands on. Um, so I'm very, very well versed in in the emotions. Of, of Frank Sinatra and what made him tick. You know, I'm sure there are other people who have a more encyclopedic knowledge of uh, which record came out in what year and with which label. But um, it, it's, I'm, I'm less interested in that, more interested in the motivation of the human being. That, that's what really, that's where I get a real kick. See, what I find so interesting about Frank and is the duality of him. Like, you look at him and he's just the coolest guy in mm. the room, in the world. And on mm. the other, he's just inside. He's so dark, and there's so many layers to him. He's not just the cool guy. What was that like, trying to find that balance? It's um, it's a very um. Well, he, I mean, it's so many things. He, you're absolutely right. He was light and shade. You know, he could turn on the spin of a dice on the spin of, on the, on the spin of a coin you never knew what was coming at you and that he was a very it wasn't a very tall man we we the identical size him and i um and borne out by the fact i own one of his tuxedos happened to come into my life and um you know when i put it on it was a moment of reckoning am i really the same size as frank sinatra and indeed i am um so he was uh, he was a powerhouse inside a very like a dynamo like a small pressure cooker and when he blew he really blew but he was also capable of great kindness so i think that there was a i don't know really there was a strange contradiction within his character but i think he was very principled he was well-intentioned he was you know he was a, a family man even though he was driven by his own demons he was a 24 carat depressive um and yet capable of you know, of creating such joy. You know, when he sang of, you know, when he sang "Fly Me to the Moon," you went right up to the up to the moon with him. Mm -hmm. You know, when he was in singing "One for My Baby" in the wee small hours of the morning, you were you were in the bar. You know, 
he, he was a man of such complicated um, contradictions, um, but capable of such beauty. So to, to, to portray that as an actor, it's a gift. It's, it's just the ultimate. It, it's wonderful. It's always, it's always more interesting as well to, to play the darker side of someone's character than it is the nice. That, that's not very interesting to me, just to yeah. play a nice character. I'm much more interested in the, in the darker, complex side of someone. I also wonder if it's interesting to play Frank because the public knew he could be kind of mean sometimes, but I don't think in his lifetime, at least, the public ever fully understood that he could be, as you said, spin, spin on the mm. on the tip of a tip of a coin. So yes, was that interesting finding it out? And what's been the audience's reactions to finding out this other side of Frank? I think he was a very magnetic person. So when, for example, so, so within, the con, within the conceit of Raw, we find a man who in 1971 is facing retirement. So, you know, he's been, a, he's been an icon, he's been a movie star, he's been three times married and, and you know, failed, he's, he's divorced. And this is the time of the Rolling Stones and, and the Beatles and, and uh, you know, David Bowie. So he's facing, like we all do, he's facing the, the great questions. What now? What, what am I for? What's it all been about? And I think that the, that forces him to reflect, to become melancholy. And, and as the, the only prop on stage, is, apart from the pianist, of course, is a bottle of Jack Daniels. And as the Jack Daniels goes down, as the hourglass of the Jack Daniels goes down, the more loose-lipped he becomes, and he rails against the injustices of the press, invasion, and the alleged mafia connections. And that gets quite frightening um, for the audience. There's a moment where he absolutely loses it, and I think one of the journalists uh, described it as a spray of bullets. And I couldn't put it better. It, it really is a spray of bullets, and, and, and he you know, you can't do a little spray of bullets. You have to go full, you know, you have to go full fat. Yeah. And, and when it comes out, it's, it's, it's quite overwhelming. But then, of course, you have to pull it back. You have to explain what... This man isn't exploding for no reason. He's exploding because of all sorts of perceived injustices. So, so it's all very, very much in context. And I, and I think, therefore, you know, never having met him, I would hate to speak on his behalf. This is just my impression. But I think that he he was passionate. He wore his heart on his sleeve, and uh, God help you if you judged him. I would say, you know, if you judged him, get out of the way <laughs> fast. Yeah, um, Frank wouldn't put up with that kind of thing. I I gather no. again. I haven't met him. I didn't meet him, but I gather Frank would not put up mm. with that kind of thing. No. This is the voice of Richard Shelton. He is here to talk to us about Sinatra Raw. And I want to ask a little bit, because going back to what you said, it, it this, this is set in 1971, and as you said, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, all these glam rock acts, which are brilliant in their own way, but what? where does Frank Sinatra fit into that? What do you think he discovered about himself in those times? I think it's a good question, because I think that he was a man who, whilst he was the epitome of, of sophistication and suave and, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, and how elegant all of that was, I feel there was a period where he went slightly off beam. He made a couple of strange albums. One was called Watertown, which is almost inaccessible, mm -hmm. but it was a response to the changing face and shape of music and then there was the period where he sort of hung around with the beatles and wore a nehru jacket and beads and it was all a bit wrong it was all not quite right didn't quite fit yeah so i think he was still trying to find a voice and be relevant in in the 70s but of course everybody knew and loved him for the classics and the the, the great american songbook um so bearing in mind he retired for the first time in 1971 and then took a break. And when he came back in 73, you know, he, he absolutely returned to what he did best and was successful to the, you know, to the end. Yeah. So I think in, in response to the Beatles and all of that, I think he had a go, but I'm, I'm not convinced it was terribly successful, to be honest with you. And also, I, would it be fair to say that was his idea? Because I don't imagine a manager coming and saying, Frank, you've got to try and do this. You've got to be like this. I can't imagine he'd have a polite answer for that. 
No, <laughs> I think it probably was his, you know, he wanted to be a little bit hip um, and, uh, you know, hang out in Palm Springs, I suspect, and, uh, you know, sort of get down with the kids. And this is at a time when he was married to Mia Farrow, who was 19 years his junior. So, you know, there were some strange influences and, and choices going on. Do you know what? I think it was potentially nothing more than a midlife crisis. And, and we all have that, you know, we, we all. I certainly, you know, when I was in my 50s, you inevitably th those questions do arise, you know. You look back on your life and, and, and you think, well, I made some good choices and then I made some dreadful mistakes. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what it's all about. That, that phase of life is, is, is about that, isn't it? And, and it's almost summed up in the song, you know, That's Life, which within, within our play, within, within Raw, he sings that as a great validation there's a wonderful lyric in it. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. And I think if you can say that in which, what, however that reflects, you know, on your life, then you've lived a life, haven't you? It, yeah. it, it can't all be plain sailing. That, that's not possible. Uh, and nor should it be like that. You know, it's all about making the mistakes and rolling with the punches and then having, you know, good days, bad days. And I, I think he I think he I think he did all of I think he did all of that in style myself. Definitely. Like towards the end, mm. even towards the yes. end, he was still just the coolest guy in the room. Yes. Without Yes, doubt. he was. Yes, yes. I wanna ask, have you had any feedback or comments from the the Sinatra family about this portrayal? <laughs> No, um, I've met them. I, I've met it's the Sinatra fan, uh, the Sinatra Enterprises is run by a guy called Charlie Pignoni in in, a, in Los Angeles, whom I've met, um, and I've met Tina and I've met Nancy, and they know who I am and they know what I do, but I keep a polite distance, and so do they. In other words, I don't want to be seen to exploit um, in any way, shape, or form. My my relationship with Sinatra is is that of an actor and i'm quite sort of um protective of that for example i i don't really go out you know if somebody says oh can you do me a frank sinatra then the answer is no i i don't i don't do that i i keep my powder dry yeah and i and i i like that and i think they possibly might like that too it's a it's a risk it's a you know you've got to have respect for your subject uh, i think if i try to exploit it um they might not look kindly on it but honestly and truly i i leave them alone and they leave me alone and that's absolutely fine i, I think we're both we're both happy with that arrangement that sounds very respectful which again is what absolutely what frank would want yes yes i think so yeah yeah i must ask though as kind of a, a music nerd and somebody who's so interested in that time period what what was what what are, what's nancy like is she nice She's very, very nice. Nancy Sinatra is a mother and a grandmother. I've been in the room when her daughter, A.J. Lambert, has sung on a couple of occasions, actually. Wow. Um, she sat across from me. And, and I must say, that was there was one night, there's a little lounge in uh, Los Angeles called the Gardenia Room. It's very unprepossessing. I mean, I'm from Wolverhampton, okay? The Gardenia Lounge would not be out of place in Wolverhampton. Let's put it like that. I it's see. a very unprepossessing strange supper club uh seats about oh i don't know 60 people very small and um aj lambert was singing that night just with a, a pianist and nancy sinatra jr came in and nancy sinatra senior in other words frank sinatra's first wife and i'm literally sitting across the room from them and that was mind-blowing. That was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm really, you know, <laughs> touching the cloth here. Yeah. This, is, this is extraordinary. That must have been but one Nancy's... of those life moments when you're like, yes, this is a life moment I will add to the, the big show reel at the end when I go and watch my best moments. This will be it. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was so intimate. And, um, no, just very – it was a lovely moment because there was Nancy Sinatra Jr. watching her daughter, so proud. It was just a fact, like glimpsing – inside a family moment so i must say on the couple of occasions i've met her she's just charming just very very nice and normal very very normal i'd say that's very cool and very good to hear thank you for indulging my my nerding i appreciate <laughs> it very much i will tell you a i will tell you a great little story though if oh, you please like please do nancy sinatra so i was working with a bass player called chuck berghofer chuck 
was part of the wrecking crew so he worked kind of with everybody through the 60s 70s very well thought of bass player and he he toured with sinatra towards the end of his life now i i was i was rehearsing something at his house and um i'd heard that he played that bass line in these moods these boots are made for walking so we were just killing a little time in his studio and i said oh chuck i you know, I, I heard you played the bass line on, on these boots are made for war. Oh, yeah, yeah, he said, yeah. On my plywood bass, and here it is. And he got he just took the bass up and he went, dung 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 And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is the instrument. This is the man who played that. That, this, that was tremendous. That As a music nerd, yeah. for me, that was, oh, that was electrifying. That was great. See, even you just telling that story, I'm like, that is electrifying. I could feel the... <laughs> the goosebumps starting to rise. I'm like, what must it have been yeah. like to be in that, to be in that moment at that time? I am very oh. jealous of you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is the voice of Richard Shelton. He is here to talk to us about Sinatra Raw. Where can people find out more about the show online and about you online? Um, they can find out about the show on the Pleasance website um, or the Ed Festival um, website, or indeed on my website, which is um, uh, www.richardshelton.co.uk. So, um, or Instagram, or all those other lovely places, you know, <laughs> social media, Facebook, all of those good, uh, all of those good places. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been so great to speak to you. And you. Thanks very much indeed. It's been great talking to you. Richard Shelton is presenting Sinatra Raw from the 6th of August until the 15th of August at the Cromdale Theatre at Pleasance at the EICC. Let's start by asking you your name and what you do, please. Yes, uh, my name is Tom. Uh, I'm Tom Brace and I am a magician. How are you today, Tom? Are you well? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, yeah, sort of getting, getting ready for, for an exciting uh, couple, of, you know, couple of days up in Edinburgh. Yeah, we were just talking a little bit before we came on air. What's your fringe experience been like in the past? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, so I so I originally started, I worked at the uh, the festival to begin with. So I used to work at the Pleasance. Uh, I was a volunteer and I worked, uh, my first summer was in 2015, uh, working on their like street team, like giving out flyers and whatnot. And then over the years, that's kind of morphed into what is now my career, which is sort of a bit bonkers, really. Um I sort of my my typical fringe experience now, obviously pre-COVID, uh, was I'd go up for a month with a magic show, uh, and yeah, lo- lots of fun to be honest. Really enjoyed it uh, and sort of gagging to get back. Let's talk about the show. What is your show's name and and what is it? Tell us about your show. Yeah, so um, so my show is called Tom Brace Eat Sleep Amaze Repeat. Uh, usually my shows have a pun on my name. So my first show was Tom Brace Brace Yourself. The next tour was... <laughs> that's actually, <laughs> good, that's a good one. I like that one. <laughs> then it was Tom Brace Brace of Spades. Uh, and then this show that I created, I didn't know how long it was going to last. I sort of started this in uh, lockdown when I was doing a couple of social distance shows. So I was like, oh, I don't want to use a brace pun in case it only happens, you know, two or three times. So I, I chose this sort of uh, title just for a bit of fun. And now I'm doing it in Edinburgh. So I, I was like tempted to change the name, but I thought, no, I'll save it for the real thing. Um, but basically it is a show, all of, it's a magic show, all about um, what magicians, well, what I w- got up to during the lockdown. Because, you know, us magicians, we'd like to be the centre of attention. So for 18 months, I was sort of locked at home, not much to do. And this show is kind of basically all about what I got up to. I'm trying to think what a show about me at home for 18 months would have been like. I, I, I was still doing this radio show. It's on air once a week here. And right. I, at this point last year, there was nobody touring. There was no guests. And it's like, so do you guys like toenails? Let me know if you like toenails. <laughs> that's how that's kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel I got to trying to sure, keep this yeah, show yeah. afloat. So I'm so happy to be speaking to people and getting out there again. Oh, what it's did- lovely, isn't it? It is so nice. But what did you do during lockdown, other than putting the show together? Well, I, so, um, when it first started, obviously there was absolutely no work at all. I, I didn't work for a very long time. So I ended up doing a, a quiz. I was hosting a Facebook quiz, of all things, on my, um, 
on my Facebook page on a Friday night, people would come along and it was like a donation sort of based thing. People could donate. And I did that for a bit. And then uh, I started doing Zoom shows. So I started doing magic on Zoom, uh, which was very fun. Um, and that sort of snowballed a little bit. It, it really kind of, it saved me financially, put it that way. Uh, and I was doing Zoom shows, maybe four or five a day um, from maybe like November until now. Uh, and it was great. And it, it really sort of it, it absolutely saved me both financially and sort of uh, mentally because I had something to do. Um, yeah. And it was you know, and it was sort of working out how to adapt, adapt that kind of art form for Zoom. Um, in fact, actually, I was going to show you a little trick, wasn't I, Peter? You up for some magic now? I am more than up for some magic. For the radio listeners, I apologize profusely. You need to watch the video. So that's what we're going to do now. There we go. Well, I'll try and make it as a you know, it's exciting for those that have only got the audio side of things. But Peter, are you any good at shuffling cards? Not really. No, neither am I. Don't worry. Okay. Um, so what I've got for you is something that's much easier. I've got a pack of invisible cards. Okay. okay? And this is probably good for the, the listeners because they can't see them either. Um, so what I want you to do, Peter, is just take those cards and give them a little shuffle, the invisible cards. That, that's a completely different gesture I'm doing. <laughs> I'm sure to... the listeners can experience <laughs> and imagine what you are doing right now. Yeah. Uh, and then okay. once you've done that, um, I want you just to spread those cards out for me, Peter, and just uh, pick a card. Anyone, don't tell me what it is. Go for something that, you know, perhaps uh, isn't so obvious, like the Queen of Hearts or the Ace of Spades. Don't choose those. Everyone chooses those. Do you have one? I think so, yeah. Lovely. Take that card and then turn it upside down for me and then just put it back in the pack. Okay. So now this is the only pack in the world that would actually look like this. Yes. Uh, give them another little mix up uh, and then chuck them back to me. Fantastic. Yeet. Oh, look at that. It was, that was quite, quite. I put some energy into it. You did. You did. And I'm going to put them in a box, close it up and put it uh, just on my table. Now, this is the best bit, Peter. You're going to love this. OK. Uh, but when I snap my fingers, the cards that were invisible, look at that, become completely. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? That is very uh, good. Thank you. Now, obviously, a lot of people, when I do that trick, they do think the cards were perhaps uh, just on the table the whole time. And what I say to the people and the people listening at home is if the cards were on the table, there would be absolutely no way Peter's card could be the only card in here upside down. So, Peter, for the first time, what card did you choose? I chose the Two of Diamonds. The Two of Diamonds. So if we've done it right... The only card in here, upside down, in theory, should be the two of diamonds. So I'm just going to just spread through the cards. Let me know when you see one card upside down. Oh, there, there it is. There it is. Out of all of the cards that you could have chosen, Peter, you chose the two <laughs> of diamonds. <laughs> there we go. Wow. And hopefully, from that reaction, the listeners at home... Uh, understood what happened there i am pretty shook i uh, <laughs> i want to know how you did it tell me your secrets i demand to know exactly <laughs> <laughs> i'd have to uh, i'd have to kill you peter and i don't want to do that i've I had a good want. life it's it's done i'm, o I'm you, over it i happy knowing the, the yes, secret to that yeah trick. that was pretty incredible i am oh thank you i am staggered oh how, well how how so that actually so that trick is the reason i got into magic um and the reason i got into magic was actually at the edinburgh fringe it was quite a few years ago and i saw this magician his name's jim the magician um he still works up in edinburgh he lives up there he's a very good friend of mine now um and he was just out and about flyering uh, and doing magic and he showed me this trick um and i just couldn't get my head around it and that started this sort of passion for magic for me um where I then, you know, I, I went to the local magic shop and I said, I saw this trick and it blew my mind and I need to learn how to do it. And they taught me it. And then, yeah, sort of fast forward all these years, I'm now back at the Edinburgh Fringe and, I'd be, and I'm doing a version or my take on that trick um, in this new show. So it's all kind of come full circle for you, which is kind of cool if you think it's about lovely. it. Like yeah. all, I don't want to sound like I'm being rude here but all the circumstances that have to come together for you to meet jim and to find his tricks and then for you to find a love of it that's pretty oh remarkable itself it, that's magic in itself right that's yes. the real magic yeah it's wonderful like i had no interest in magic as a kid i um i always i i, I sort of trained as a performer i sort of did a lot of acting i did a drama degree at university had no interest in magic uh then i was working uh for 
yeah, like the presence. And I missed performing. I missed being on stage. And then this sort of magic opportunity came up and I said, yeah, why not? I'll give it a go. Um, and yeah, and now here I am uh, performing literally in, you know, a couple of days in, in Edinburgh. In a couple of days at what is argu- arguably, in fact, not arguably, I read a stat that Fringe is the world's biggest arts festival. So that's where Bonkers. you are. That's where you are. What's your favourite thing about coming up to the Fringe and experiencing it? And what do you, this is going to be kind of a, I don't want to be a downer, but it's going to be a little bit different this year. What are you worried is going to be a bit different? Um, It's just such an electric atmosphere, you know, from all the performances you get to see to all the, the friends that you make, like, oh my gosh, I've made some absolute friends for life at the Fringe. You know, my two housemates that I live with now, we've lived together for five years. We met at the Fringe. Uh, I just love, you know, it just, it seems like it's millions of people in the same place that all have a shared appreciation and love for live performance. And I just think that's such a wonderful, a wonderful thing to like, you know, to, to be part of every year. Um, obviously, you know, without being you know that's the sentimental side of it out of the way i love the parties i love going for <laughs> you know a pint after a show i love uh you know watching comedy watching theater watching dance um yeah and then this year it is going to be different like you know normally i go up with a team of people so um my show is produced through a company called play people productions uh and i'm actually at their house now where we're rehearsing but they can't come up this year so it's just me normally we have a big house share there's like five of us that come up this year, it's me in a little flat for six days. So it is sad. Like, I'm so thrilled to be going up, but I am I am going to miss that side of it as well. Nostalgic for what has been, but excited for what is coming. You've nailed it, Peter. Yeah, it's like, and I'm so, I feel so lucky to be able to come up and do it. And I know that not everyone's in a position this year to be able to do it. Um, and it's going to be different. And it's going to be different, but I think we've all just got to give it our all and just throw ourselves into it and just sort of, you know, we gotta we gotta come back fighting, right? Yes, absolutely. The, the important thing is that the fringe is back, performers are back, and the people are going to be back. That's yeah, that's the main thing, and I'm very excited about it. Where can people find out more about you online, Tom? So uh, you can find out about me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, and I'm at Tom Brace Magic. So that's brace is like, you know like in your mouth or yeah trouser braces. tom brace magic uh, and you can find my website www.tombracemagic.com uh, and my show is happening at uh, underbelly uh, in george square gardens from the 9th of august to the 14th of august at five o'clock that sounds fantastic thank you so much for your time today tom it's so good to see you and thanks for the magic no problem cheers peter Tom Brace is performing his show Eat, Sleep, Amaze, Repeat at Underbelly at the Edinburgh Fringe from the 9th of August until the 14th of August at 5pm. Go to tickets.edfringe.com and search Tom Brace. And that, my guys, my gals, and my non-binary pals, is it for today's episode of the show. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to all my guests for joining me. Back tomorrow with another brand new episode. It's talking to some brand new people at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival 2021. Until then, my name's Peter Greenwood. Bye, every single. Bye-bye.